Father, we confess we are blind and deaf to all the things of you and of your son, Jesus. We have assumed that we have known and we have not known as we ought to have known. So, Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you open our ears? When you told your prophet Jeremiah that you are watching over your word to perform it. So, would you watch over your word now? And do according to all your holy pleasure through it in our hearts. Accomplish your good purposes by speaking your word to us today. Your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake, amen. As our world has become more divided politically, it is increasingly common to hear people with little experience and even less expertise spouting confident opinions about how countries ought to be run and how cities ought to be governed. (laughs) Although we might be slow to admit it, we ourselves are among that number. We discover a set of compelling statistics or learn of an interesting historical pattern We read a convincing book or see a compelling headline or documentary, and suddenly our own voices are added to the dissonant chorus of public opinion on politics. We're all armchair public servants, or sometimes worse, Monday morning quarterbacks, critical of what's being offered to us as civic leadership. Of course, we're all entitled to our opinion at some level. But what happens when we direct that sense of entitlement to our own opinion to Jesus? Are we entitled to our own opinion about him? The Bible does not take for granted that we naturally get what Jesus is all about. In fact, the Bible is such a big book precisely because of how badly and how naturally we misunderstand God in Christ. As we turn our attention to John 18, verses 28 to 40 this morning, John 18, 28 to 40, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, it will become painfully clear that the world neither understands who Jesus is nor wants what Jesus offers. This is what's happening when the Jews are accusing Jesus and Pilate is delivering him over to be crucified. In fact, this misunderstanding of who Jesus is, this lack of desire for what Jesus offers, this is why we cannot even see the kingdom of God, much less enter it, without being born again. The world neither understands who Jesus is nor wants what Jesus offers. We'll meditate on that truth with three rebuttals of the world's perspective on Jesus as we find it in John 18. But first, let's hear the text speak for itself. John 18, verses 28 through 40. 
Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered its headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest has delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber or an insurrectionist. So the world neither understands who Jesus is nor wants what Jesus offers. We'll meditate on that truth with three rebuttals of the world's perspective on Jesus as we find it in John 18, 28 to 40. First, the world's charges against Jesus are false. The world's charges against Jesus are false, and they're false in four ways. First and foremost, they're hypocritical. The charges against Jesus are false in the sense that they're two-faced, they're insincere, and they're made by people who are totally self-unaware. Annas, the retired but still influential high priest, sends Jesus to his son-in-law Caiaphas, the currently serving and official high priest. Caiaphas is now apparently done with him, at least for the time being, so his servants lead Jesus to the praetorium, probably Herod's old house, where Pilate now lived. Pilate, of course, was no Jew, and Jews were wound pretty tight about associating with Gentiles, especially inside Gentile houses. Think of Peter's discomfort about entering Cornelius' house in Acts 10.28, or about eating with Gentiles in Galatians 2.12. And if they were ceremonially unclean by contact with Gentiles or things that Gentiles ate that Jews were not supposed to eat ceremonially, then those Jews couldn't eat the Passover, which was going to be observed later the same day. 
So these Jews don't want to enter a Gentile governor's house in order to prosecute the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Just appreciate that irony. Because they don't want to become ritually unclean. They think they are preserving their purity for Passover by not darkening Pilate's doors. And yet, they go there to seek Jesus' prosecution and crucifixion. Friend, whether you're a conservative, moralistic, religious person, or whether you're a liberal, socially conscious activist, look at how you can be so tightly wound on one relatively minor issue that you have majored on. And look how completely loose you can be and even clueless on something so central to the gospel of Jesus. Now compare that to Jesus' integrity. Jesus is not unrighteous compared to us. We are unrighteous compared to him. We're the hypocrites, not Jesus. This is what we don't understand about Jesus or about ourselves. We don't understand Jesus' integrity. As Jesus will say to Pilate in just a moment, Jesus was born to testify to the truth. That's all he's done. That's all he's been doing. His life was like his tunic, seamless. It's cut all of one piece of cloth. There's no hypocrisy in Jesus. But Christian, examine yourself. Of course, you're not trying to prosecute Jesus. But there are Christian versions of this Jewish insincerity and even unself-awareness that led to hypocrisy in them. Whether Christian nationalism, Christian nominalism, or even Christian activism. And these Christian versions of hypocrisy are just as many nails in Christ's hands. The Jews were trying to keep their place and nation under Roman rule. They were nationalists, offering up Jesus on the altar of their own ethnocentric political aspirations. And Christian nationalism is not so very different than that. It'll do nearly anything to pursue the ideal of a Christian commonwealth, even if that means sacrificing the truth, uniqueness, specificity, and power of Jesus on the altar of a nation. These Jews were also also ritualists. They were thinking that they were being scrupulous in purity while they were offering up Jesus Christ to be crucified. We'd better not go into Pilate's house to accuse Jesus of treason. Otherwise, we won't be able to eat the Passover tonight with the family. And Christian nominalism is not so different than that. It'll sacrifice personal loyalty and obedience to Jesus as long as it can keep up appearances at church. As long as everyone sees you taking communion, serving as an usher, cleaning up after potluck. Even social activism, social justice in the name of Christ can fall prey to this hypocrisy, pursuing public reform while excusing hatred of those who disagree with us. Greed for money or sex outside biblical marriage. We're all still susceptible to this kind of hypocrisy, whether we're left or right of sin. 
But of course, the main application is to those who still crucify Jesus in their hearts from unbelief and resentment about Jesus' person and message. God, Christ, and the Bible all see right through a secularist, virtue-signaling rejection of Jesus. As if Jesus' integrity is suspect to inquiry rather than our own integrity. When these Jews refused to enter Pilate's unclean house, they were virtue signaling. In the very moment in which they were executing the judicial murder of Jesus. And the modern secular heart makes many similar moves with just as little self-awareness of its own hypocrisy and double standard. It is the same issue. We excel at what's easy because we fail at what's hard. Condemning others while preening in the mirror of self-approval. That's easy. But the world's charges against Jesus are false in another way. They're unsubstantiated. Well, Pilate knows the Jews well enough to realize they they view his house as unclean, so he graciously goes out to them. But when he asks them what charge they're bringing against Jesus, their answer in verse 30 is laughable. It kind of makes you do a double take. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him up over to you. Well, (laughs) what kind of answer is that? That is a non-answer. The translation of that is, trust us, take our word for it. This guy is a menace, just execute him already, will you? I mean, they don't have a formal charge, at least nothing that would convince Pilate as a non-Jewish Roman governor that Jesus deserves to die. What are they going to tell him? This Jesus is violating the law of Moses by claiming to be equal with Yahweh? Pilate doesn't care about Yahweh. You see John's point as he's narrating this historical scene. The Jews have nothing on Jesus, especially no evidence that he's committed any capital crime. They have no accusation against him that a Roman prefect would ever find convincing. And the same is true today in the court of public opinion. Every modern charge against Jesus is unsubstantiated. Jesus is not a charlatan or a fraud out to make a buck. You can't prove that about him. He was a poor, he was as poor and homeless in this life as anybody. He's not a cult leader. Everything he taught, he taught in public, right out in the open. He certainly was not a religious nationalist angling for political power or office. He was holy, he was righteous, he was a tax-paying citizen of the empire. He wasn't lying about himself. No one would die for a lie. The truth is, we cannot substantiate our natural resentment towards Jesus. Because Jesus is not the problem. We are the problem. Jesus is not what's wrong with the world. We, we are what's wrong with the world. And Jesus is the solution. That is what Jesus has been saying all along. And yet that is the reason that we have hated him. 
But friends, his charges against us are true, and we have tried to turn the tables on him, and that's not going to work. Jesus taught that God is our holy creator, our righteous judge, our loving provider. He created us to know and love and serve him forever, and we sinned. We rebelled against his law and against his love by trying to discover right and wrong for ourselves, by trying to decide right and wrong for ourselves, apart from his protective authority over us. Our rebellion then drew down God's righteous anger and wrath and condemnation of us, which John says remains on us as long as we trust that we are right and Jesus is wrong. But God sent Jesus to live the sinless life we ought to have lived and to die under God's judicial wrath in order to save us from God's righteous wrath in hell for all eternity. And Jesus rose from the dead three days later as the vindication of his righteousness. If we trust him, then he will reconcile us to the God that we rebelled against. Friend, you must realize that in accusing Jesus of wrongdoing, You are condemning and rejecting the only one who can save you from the power and penalty of your own sin. Your charges against him are unsubstantiated, but his charges against you are already proven in God's court. So you should take his hand because he may not offer it again. The world's charges against Jesus are false in another way. They're powerless. You can tell from Pilate's answer that he knows they don't have anything legitimate on Jesus. So he actually punts the football right back to them. You judge him yourselves based on your own law. Pilate would have been really busy at this time of day. He would have been adjudicating hundreds of cases that were brought to him. So he doesn't really want to deal with this. But he's also kind of toying with the Jews. He knows they need him in order to do this political favor. So he's making them admit that they need him. You wouldn't have come here at all if you didn't really need me to do something for you. If you could judge this guy on your own, you wouldn't even be here right now. If this is just some religious thing, you deal with it yourself. And now they have to admit it. We're not allowed to carry out the death penalty under Roman rule. That's what they need Pilate for. They want him to condemn Jesus to crucifixion because only Pilate as governor had the authority to do that in a Roman province. The Jews were powerless to crucify anybody, much less the Son of God. And it remains the same for us today. This is what makes every attempt to cancel Jesus ultimately pathetic. We don't have the authority or power to cancel Jesus. Jesus' resurrection has reduced the world's resentment of him to impotent rage. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. None of what's going on in John 18 threatens God 
in the least. None of this attempt to cancel Jesus or to crucify him, none of that worries God. None of it weakens God. None of it takes anything away from him. Friend, if you hold Jesus in derision now, then you can be sure that he will hold you in derision on judgment day. You will not be able to withstand that. Your rejection of Jesus will backfire on you. And I would rather you be angry with me now for telling you that than angry at me in hell for not telling you that. We are not the ones in power. Jesus is. He's the one holding all the cards. And that means that even all our threats against Jesus are subservient to his sovereign will. And that's the fourth way that all the world's charges against him are false. They're a false attempt or grasp at power when really they're just subservient to Christ's will. John notes in verse 32 that the Jews only mentioned killing Jesus as a fulfillment of what Jesus had already said, signifying how he would die. He had said that in chapter 3, verse 14. If I am lifted up, if I am lifted up on the cross is what he means, I will draw all people to myself. Or in 8.28, when you lift up the Son of Man, when you hang him on a cross, then you will know that I am he. He had said in chapter 12, verse 24, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Their death threats only fulfill what Jesus had already said about his own death. And so their hostility becomes subservient to his own intentions to die for the sins of all his trusting people. And the same remains true today. Try as you might, all the world's efforts to cancel Jesus will only exalt him all the more. Because Jesus is not subservient to us. All reality is subservient to him. And this is why the early church could pray as they did in Acts 4.27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so the church takes comfort from Christ's authority in their very next statement to God in that same prayer in Acts 4. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, the world's threats against the church, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The world threatens to do to the church what the world did to Jesus. And the world's threats against the church will be no more successful than the world's threats were against Jesus. Their threats will ultimately become subservient to Jesus' purposes for the church. And this is why we can pray together with the early church. Grant that we would still speak with boldness as well, even though they're threatening awful things. 
So Christian, take comfort and be bold. If even the Jews' threats against Jesus himself were subservient to the Father's plans for him, then the world's threats against you as a Christian, against us as a church, will become subservient to the Father's plan for you and for us. Stay bold and faithful in your evangelism. Second rebuttal to the world's perspective on Jesus. The world's appraisal of Jesus is inadequate. The world's appraisal of Jesus is inadequate. And for a few reasons, not the least of which because it's secondhand. After dealing with the Jews outside, Pilate goes back inside to ask Jesus a few questions. Are you king of the Jews? You? Not sure how he asked that, but it's hard to think Pilate is dealing with Jesus king to king here. Just taking his word for it. It's more likely a question of disbelief. Are you, such as you are, a peasant, farmer, carpenter? Are you, are you the king of the Jews? What am I supposed to believe about you? Am I really supposed to believe that? Of someone like you? A homeless man? But from Jesus' perspective, Pilate only refers to Jesus as a king because that's what the Jews accuse him of claiming. So Jesus says, is that what you think of me for yourself? Or did someone else tell you to call me that? I mean, why is this even an issue for you? I don't even think it would have occurred to you to ask me if I were a king unless somebody else told you that's what they thought I was claiming. That's a charge that the brute Jews brought to Pilate. But Pilate does not know Jesus as king. Pilate has no firsthand knowledge or experience of Jesus' authority. Pilate only knows of Jesus secondhand from what the Jews have told him. When Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, he means to distance himself from the whole affair. I'm not part of your people or their history or their hopes, and I'm kind of glad of it. Pilate has no desire to have firsthand knowledge of Jesus. Nor do many today. Many today only know of Jesus. They've heard that he has been called a king. They know about that. They might even hear of him every Sunday. But they do not know Jesus as king for themselves or over them. They've not experienced or submitted to his authority. They're not insiders to what Jesus is and means for his people. They don't hear him speak in scripture. They're not talking to him in prayer. They don't trust him in life. They do not hope in him in death. They have no experience of proving Jesus' faithfulness to them as their shepherd king. The king of love my shepherd is. They don't know what that means. To have this king as their savior from sin, as their prophet to explain God, as their priest to appease God, and especially not as their king to represent God's authority to them. And what about you, friend? What do you say about Jesus? What do you know about him? What do you know of him? Do you know him as king, as your king? Do you treat him like that? Why do you think of Jesus 
as you do because of something a religion or science professor said to you about him one day? Because of some accusation someone leveled against him? Because of something bad that happened to them? Or because you have tasted and seen that God really is good in Christ? Unbeliever, you criticize Christians for trusting the authors of the Bible and what they have said about Jesus from their experience. But you yourself are trusting what Jesus' critics say about him. Have you ever tried to simply take Jesus at his word as it comes to you from his hand-picked apostles? Or are you just swallowing what his critics say because that's how you choose to excuse your favorite sins? And if you're not getting your information about Jesus from the apostles that he himself appointed to represent him, then your own appraisal of Jesus remains inadequate. And it may well be just as prejudiced as Pilate's appraisal was. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? See how he jumps from the first to the... Well, <laughs> they delivered you over to me. What would you do? It's almost like he's buying lock, stock, and barrel, the very flimsy thing that the Jews just said to him. If this man were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Pilate goes back and almost parrots that same logic back to Jesus. Your own chief priest, your own people handed you over to me. What'd you do? Pilate's prejudice against Jesus by the Jews' accusations He seems to assume, at least here at the outset, for the moment, that Jesus has done something wrong enough to upset his own leaders. It's a lot like Job's friends assuming Job had sinned. And we today are prejudiced against Jesus, and our prejudice is both from listening to the world's opinion of him and listening to our own hearts, our own sin nature. John had opened his whole gospel in chapter 1, verse 11, by saying of Jesus, he came to his own, and his own received him not. And here they are rejecting him one final time. And Pilate recognizes that what John said was true, even if he doesn't realize it. They handed him over. And yet the world's appraisal of Jesus is not just inadequate because it's secondhand and prejudiced, but also because it's a very this-worldly appraisal. Jesus tells Pilate in verse 36 that while he is in fact a king, his kingdom is not like Pilate's kingdom. I am a king. I do have a kingdom, but it's not like yours. It's not like any kingdom in this world. My kingdom is not of this world. What's that mean, though? It means, at the very least, that his kingdom doesn't have its origin or source in this world. It doesn't get its legitimacy from this world. It's not from here as Jesus will say at the end of verse 36. It doesn't rise from the same principles or powers as a worldly kingdom. It's not economic or military. It's of a whole different kind, composition, and order. Pilate's kingdom is based on coercion and violence. It's based on self-assertion, self-promotion, self-protection, and self-reliance. Pilate's kingdom is purely external. 
Its power is merely human. Its authority is only temporary. Its aim is merely preservative. Its influence is only this worldly, natural, mundane, even though its benefits are common to all. Jesus' kingdom, by contrast, extends to the internal, to the heart, where Pilate could never reach. In Jesus' kingdom, his power is divine. Its authority is eternal. His kingdom's aim is redemptive, not just preservative. And its influence is supernatural and transcendent, not just natural and mundane, even though its benefits are limited only to those who trust in Jesus and submit to his reign over their hearts and lives. And most importantly, Jesus' kingdom is built not on Jesus' self-assertion, but on his self-denial. Not on his self-promotion, but his self-humiliation. Not on his self-protection, but on his self-giving. Not of this world. And it's another reason that the world's appraisal of Jesus is, is inadequate. The world can only appraise Jesus from within its own natural, external, temporal, human system of values and priorities, knowledge and ideologies. When the world tries to appraise Jesus with its own accounting software, it considers Jesus foolish, offensive, and bankrupt. 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Pilate has no idea who he's talking to or what he's talking about. Having said all that, the spirituality of Christ's kingdom does not mean Christ and Christianity have nothing to say to the state or that the state is not accountable to Christ. Pilate is still accountable to God and Christ because Jesus will soon clarify for Pilate, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. And therefore, you are accountable to above, to God, even though you do not believe in him. Every state is accountable to God as the prophetic oracles of judgment against all the nations make painfully clear in books like Jeremiah and Isaiah. But they are accountable to Christ as creator. They are accountable to him based on common grace and general revelation. And yet the world's appraisal of Jesus is inadequate for one more reason, because it's relative. It's relative. Verse 37, Jesus elaborates on the nature and purpose of his transcendent authority as king of God's kingdom. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, in order that I might testify to the truth. All who are of the truth hear my voice. Christ's authority as king of God's kingdom is to testify to the truth and righteousness of God and also to the falsity and sinfulness of humanity. The truth Jesus is testifying to is nothing less than the gospel itself. It is the truth that God really did create the world and everybody in it. He created humanity in His image to reflect His righteousness, to distribute His love to one another. But we rebelled when Adam decided to figure out good and evil from under, from out from under God's authority, and that brought down again God's righteous curse of eternal conscious torment in hell. 
under God's judicial anger, but God sent Jesus to testify to all this truth in his own divine human person, in his authoritative teaching, in his moral example, in his miracles. He testified that he is the second Adam, come to accomplish for us what the first Adam failed to do. He came to testify to God's love and wanting to redeem and save us. God's righteousness, which will not forgive unless his justice has already been satisfied by a substitute sacrifice in our place for our sins. And this objective transcendent truth is what Jesus now calls us to believe and obey by turning from our own thoughts to believe in what Jesus says and what he's done for us. It's precisely this objective truth for which Pilate has zero category or respect. What is truth? He asked Jesus. The more I've read that, the more I think that's not Pilate waxing philosophical and speculative. Pilate's not wishing he could have an undergraduate philosophy class on truth from Jesus. This is not Pilate channeling his inner Plato while he's got Jesus with him. Ah, but what is truth? What do you think, Jesus? That's not what Pilate is doing. He doesn't want an answer from Jesus. He's making fun of Jesus. Truth? (laughs) What is truth? You've got to be kidding me. You, You can't be serious. Truth. What is a man like me? What possible use could I have for truth as you seem to mean it? I don't even know what you mean by that. I'm a politician. I'm just trying to get through this day. Truth. The last thing Pilate wants is an answer to that question. No wonder the world's appraisal of Jesus is inadequate. The world does not even believe in the concept of truth, much less the truth to which Jesus testifies. People are asking the same question with that same attitude still today. Truth. What can you possibly mean by truth? Whose truth? And the world today doesn't want an answer to that question any more than Pilate did. Friend, if that's you, then just to be clear, you're siding with Pilate, not with Jesus. But look at Pilate's legacy. His own relativism and skepticism towards transcendent truth is what cemented his place in history as the one who condemned Jesus to death. Friend, you are at a crossroads this morning. Are you going to follow Pilate? Are you going to follow Jesus? You will never appraise Jesus for his true worth until you take Pilate's question seriously. What is truth? If you don't want an answer to that question, that doesn't mean that you've just created your own truth. It means you have actually bitten into Satan's lie. 
hook, line, and sinker. But if you've been thinking about Jesus and his claims to truth, and you're interested in his claims and maybe even convicted about your sins, then that's a wonderful sign that your time of living in a lie and in your sin might be coming to an end. And you're beginning to live in the truth of Christ. Don't waste that opportunity. Turn from your own thoughts and trust in Christ today. Third, final rebuttal to the world's perspective on Jesus. The world's demands of Jesus are misguided. The world's demands of Jesus are misguided. What the world wants from Jesus is not something Jesus came to give. And what Jesus did come to give, the world does not want. You can tell this is what John wants to emphasize here. Pilate actually affirms Jesus' righteousness, or at least his innocence, and offers to release Jesus. But Jesus is not wanted by his own. Not this man. We don't want him. It's not just we don't want him to rule over us as king. It's We don't want him at all. We don't want him to live. They don't want what Jesus is, nor do they want what Jesus gives. What they want is something he did not come to offer, not this man, but Barabbas. They want that man. Now, Barabbas was a robber, which is better translated an insurrectionist. Not only by the usage of the word, but by the passage in Acts 3 that we just read, where the apostles called Barabbas not a robber, but a murderer. Barabbas was a rebel. He was a revolutionary. He was a radical, an insurgent. He's the kind of leader the Jews wanted. That's who they chose. He's the kind of leader they chose over Jesus. Someone to lead them into a kingdom that is of this world. A military leader, a political leader, a social leader, someone to get them out from under Rome's thumb. To them, Barabbas looks like maybe Judas Maccabeus from the Maccabean Revolt a hundred years prior, at least. They're licking their chops. In Caiaphas's words, Barabbas is the kind of guy who might lead them to do more than just keep their place and their nation under Roman rule. He could do that and then some. For them, Barabbas represented the chance to recover their national sovereignty and autonomy out from under Rome. Not this man, but Barabbas. Release him. That's what they wanted, a rebel leader to give them a kingdom that is of this world when Jesus is the righteous leader offering them a kingdom that is not of this world. And friends, this same demand lodges in all of our hearts today. We demand that Jesus makes our lives in this world better, like the crowds expecting free bread from him 
The morning after he multiplied the fish and the loaves in John 6, we demand the body of Christ make this world a better place. We demand that Jesus puts Christians in the place of power so that Christians can pull the levers of power. And we cannot imagine that Jesus might actually want it otherwise for his own glory and our good. But the kingdom Jesus is building is in our hearts, our relationships, our churches. Jesus didn't come to create a utopian society or even a utopian neighborhood in this life. His only nation-building program is to build his church as a new humanity from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The truth is, what Jesus came to give was not good news to the people who crucified him. They had a different vision of what a gospel would be. They had their gospel. Their gospel was for Jesus to make it rain bread from heaven and free them from the Romans to reestablish a kingdom of this world. Jesus' gospel is to earn us a righteousness by his life, pay the penalty of our sins by his death, rise from the dead in order to raise us up to new spiritual life and freedom from our sins and an obedience to Jesus' love and rule and then to usher in us into the eternal new heavens and new earth to worship him forever. That's Jesus' good news. And it's better than ours. But what Jesus considers good news, the Jews consider offensive, and the rest of humanity considers foolishness. And yet again, same is true today. The world wants a kind of freedom that Jesus does not offer. The world wants freedom for sin. Jesus came to free us from sin. The world wants Jesus to make all our problems go away. Jesus wants to make all our sins go away. Those are two different things, two different aims, two different gospels. One of them is a lie. And one of them is the truth. One of them seems good at first, and the other is more glorious than we can imagine. The world neither understands who Jesus is nor wants what Jesus offers. That's why the world rejected Jesus while he was here on earth. It is why the world rejects him still today. But that is not keeping Jesus from building his church. It just means He has to send his spirit down with power to give us new eyes to see, new ears to hear, new hearts to understand, and new affections to love him for who he is. This is why we pray together as a church. We are not here just for ourselves. We are here for those who are yet to come by God's grace. We are here for those yet to be gathered in by Jesus as our great shepherd. We are not able to make anyone understand who Jesus is or want the kingdom Jesus offers. We can't make anybody do that or want that or see that. But that's not worldly pessimism. It is biblical realism. It is total dependence on God to do for sinners and for the church what none of us can do by ourselves or for ourselves. So are these the things? Are these the things we want from Jesus? Or would, he, would we rather him give us something else? Let's pray.
Lord, we confess that we have looked to you wanting things that you don't even want for us. Expecting things that you have never promised. Preferring things that you even disapprove. Oh Lord, will you forgive us, please? We're being so wrong about you. Use by your grace the ministry of this church, the relationships in this church, the congregation of this church to help others come to see and love Jesus for who he is and what he gives. Make this a place where people can discover those things discover and learn how to enjoy them. Lord, we need you to give us and others a heart for who Jesus is and what he gives. So grow our hearts for the gospel of Jesus Christ and give others new hearts to see him and to see his kingdom as worthy of all their devotion. For Jesus' sake, amen.